Good morning. I'm really happy to be here today with you guys. Um, this church has a really special place in, in my heart and my wife's heart. And uh, yeah, to think about the fact that we started in 2003, just like you guys, and we're not that far away, uh, just out there in White Swan. Uh, but it is a different world in White Swan. It's not very far, but it's a different world. A lot of you guys know. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate uh, all the leaders here. Appreciate John and his support and Dennis and so many others. Um, and uh, just a lot of friendships here. Um, I do think the praise and worship team has, I think that's the best I've heard. And y'all have had really good good praise and worship folks, leaders in the past, but this is, this was great this morning. So wonderful to be with you. Uh, my wife is not with me. Uh, she would love to be, but she's out in White Swan. Uh, we had 60 people come in last night from Pennsylvania and Maryland and Seattle, and they're going to be roofing and painting this week out in White Swan and doing kids clubs in the housing projects uh, in White Swan and uh, one near Hera also. So they're they're in town and she's helping to host them and uh, doing a lot of food prep and things like that this morning and having church at our church. So um, I, we were trying to remember the last time I was here, I think it's been five or six years maybe. So that means I can tell my normal jokes. Y'all probably don't remember them, right? <clears throat> but uh, yeah, and I also wanted to mention uh, Forever is with me. She's my youngest. Uh, we have four grown kids that are, have, are in their 20s and almost 30. I'm a grandfather now, that's new, since uh, we have a one and a half year old grandson and love, I love being a grandfather. I knew I would, but no, nah, I didn't know how much I'd love it. Um, so yeah, really excited to be with you guys, really grateful for Sun Valley. Uh, when we visit churches around the country, uh, we ask churches to consider doing one of three things. We ask people to consider praying for us on a regular basis, maybe consider supporting us financially, uh, and consider sending teams out, coming out and working with us like these folks that have come into town. And Sun Valley's done all three uh, for a long time. For years and years, you guys have been praying for us, supporting us financially, sending folks out to, to work with us, and we really are grateful for that. Uh, I know COVID threw a wrench in everything, uh, but we're past that now and, and back on our feet and going again. So. We would, and I'd love to invite you guys to come out anytime. Um, if you want to come see what our church is like on Sunday morning, uh, there's a lot of similarities to your worship service and ours. And then there's a lot of things that are different too. Uh, we send out multiple vans and buses to pick up folks that don't have a ride to church. Uh, sometimes it's older people that don't have a reliable vehicle or they don't have somebody to bring them. Sometimes it's little kids that want to come to church, but no adults in their family are coming. Uh, in fact, one day, one of our buses pulled up to pick up a kid that comes every week. Now he's in our youth group, one of the biggest kids in our church. But he was a little guy back then. He was about five years old. <clears throat> and he didn't realize it was Sunday morning. <clears throat> and he heard the bus pull up and looked out the window and realized, oh, it's time for church. <clears throat> and he wasn't ready, but he didn't want to miss the bus. So he came tearing out of the house as fast as he could, jumped up on the bus completely naked, had no, no clothes, no shoes, no nothing. And the bus driver, whoa, 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 you know. And he's like, I don't want to miss church. Okay, okay, you can go back in and put your clothes on. I'm not going to leave you, I promise. 
And he's like, you sure? You sure? Because in his mind, if I can just get to church, they're going to take care of me. They have clothes there. They have food. Everything, everything I need is at church if I can just get there. And uh, <clears throat> there's an excitement on Sunday. I, I love being here <clears throat> with you guys, but I hate not being there. There's this excitement on Sunday morning. I would love for you to see it for yourself. Um, it's almost like Christmas morning every Sunday with the kids. They, they can't, and I wasn't like that. When I, I hated going to church when I was a kid. To be honest, I'd rather be running around the woods or something. But <clears throat> these kids love coming to church, and they know that we love them. A lot of them, it's the only safe place they really have. Home is not safe. School's not safe. Their neighborhood's not safe. But when they come to church, they know they're going to be safe. We do have whatever they need. If they need shoes, we've got them. If they need breakfast, we've got that. We're going to have lunch after church every week, and they know that. But they love the songs. Even the little kids, they'll, they'll have, we have their little bulletins. And when I'm up front, we have, for our kids, we have assigned seating, which is different too. But the smallest kids that come with no adults are on the front rows so they can see. Uh, so we have the little girls on this row and little boys on this row, and they have leaders with them. And they can't read yet, but they're holding their little bulletins and they're, they're trying to read my mouth. They're trying to watch my mouth while we're singing and try to sing along best they can. And they want to make sure they're on the right page. And so their leaders are helping them, even though they can't read. So it's the cutest thing. And then we have, uh, usually we have about 50 little kids, like fifth grade and younger. Again, coming with no adults. Uh, <clears throat> we'll usually have 25 or 30 teenagers. Um, and then maybe these days, 30, 35 adults. Uh, so it's a it's an exciting thing and you're welcome to come anytime it, you know I know you don't want to miss church here either but maybe you could come to the 830 service and then slip out and head to White Swan and have church with us too and free lunch after home cooked meal afterwards too um, another thing another opportunity that's coming up soon we have an after-school program that meets uh, on Wednesdays and Thursdays and we help kids with their homework and we help kids learn how to read and we play all kind of fun games, math games and different things. And they go on field trips. And we do need more volunteers for that. Um, we had a couple. One, one of our volunteers is our head pastors. I'm not the head pastor anymore. I stepped down in March and I'm an assistant pastor now. And we have a native pastor named Joshua who's Hopi. And he stepped up into the lead role. Um, and so his wife is having a baby any minute. And she can't help with the after-school program in the fall. And we had another helper from, Miss, uh, from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And he's having to move back to Tennessee because his mom is really, really sick. So we need some more helpers with the after-school program. And it's not a crazy, some of the stuff we do is, is kind of wild and crazy. This is not a crazy thing. The kids are hand-picked uh, to be part of this. So they're, they, they do what you tell them to and all that. But we, there's other ways to get involved. And we'd love for you to consider that. We have more information too, but I always forget this part. We have some stuff at the table in the lobby. So if you wanna, we'll be there after the service if you wanna come talk and find out more. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, let's see, a few more things. Uh, when we moved here in 2003, it was just me and my wife and our four biological kids. And like I said, they're all grown now. Um, but the goal was always to get a healthy church started in White Swan. Um, I don't know when the last time there was a healthy church in White Swan. It's been a long time. Uh, there was a, when we moved here, there was a Methodist church in town. There was a Disciples of Christ church, but they weren't really even a church anymore. I don't know what they were doing, but there's a Catholic church in town. I'm not, I'm not too sure how healthy it is. I don't really know. 
but now the Methodist Church closed down. The Disciples of Christ are gone. Like we're, it's us, us and the Catholics nowadays out there. It's just, just us. Um, but that was the goal, was to get a healthy church started. Um, and the first time I ever came to White Swan, people ask, you know, well, how did you even hear about White Swan? I was a youth director in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where I grew up. Uh, you can hear I talk funny still. Uh, but uh, grew up there and loved doing youth ministry. I really didn't want to do anything else. I just, I loved it. Um, and every summer we would take our group somewhere to, to serve for a week. We had been to inner city D.C. a couple times. We'd been to Little Havana and Little Haiti down in Miami. And those were all great trips. Loved, I loved all that. <clears throat> and uh, in the summer of 2000, I brought our group to White Swan. There was an elderly couple from Atlanta that would travel around the country in the, su- in the summertime and host teams on various reservations. And they had done some research, and they determined that White Swan was one of the poorest communities in the nation. And that's where they tried to go. And some of the others were down on the Texas border, places like that. So they would come to White Swan for just two weeks every summer, this elderly couple from Atlanta, and they would host teenagers, basically youth groups, to come in and work on people's homes. And I thought I knew what we were doing. (laughs) Uh, I thought I knew what I was getting into that week. I'd been to third world countries, and I'd worked in the inner city a lot. I'd seen real intense poverty in Indonesia, Guatemala. Um, I didn't think I was, I didn't think this trip was going to have any impact on me really. <clears throat> I thought it was going to be really good for my teenagers, but obviously it had a big impact on me. Uh, and the, so we came in the summer of 2000 for a week and I was devastated. I mean, I honestly, I don't, I don't even know what all happened to me that week. I don't know if I've, I don't, I don't know if I had a nervous breakdown. I don't even know, but I had a hard time functioning that week. Um, in short, it's a long story that, you know, I could tell you a three, four hour version, but I, I, I fell in love with the children out there and it wasn't because they were so lovable. They actually weren't <laughs> very lovable. They wouldn't tell us their names for three or four days. Some of them never told us their names all week long. They were in bad shape. The kids in, in Totus Park and the housing project, uh, I mean, they were in bad, bad shape. Uh, And something that happened that week that's really strange, never happened before or since to me, it only happened that week, and it happened multiple times. My kids were little. Uh, My oldest was, I don't know, five. My second was four. My third was uh, two, and my son was one, maybe. I might be a year off. But I had never, they stayed back home with my wife in Alabama, and this weird thing that happened was by Wednesday, this always happened by Wednesday or Thursday, I was really missing my family. Uh, they were not with me and I was, uh, and, but the strange thing that happened is out of the corner of my eye, I would see one of the children from white Swan. Uh, there was a little girl that was the same age as my second daughter, Beth, and she was in bad shape. I mean, she had obviously been knocked around. She was, she was neglected and abused and, but she looked a lot like my little girl. And <laughs> that's a long time ago, but I still get emotional. Um, I saw her out of the corner of my eye, and I thought it was my daughter, Beth. And I spun toward her and wanted to scoop her up and hug her because I was missing Beth so much. And for a split second, um, I forgot that Beth wasn't with me. And for a split second, I looked at that little girl like she was behind. <laughs> Um, 
<clears throat> and it broke my heart. Um, and again, that had never happened to me before. I'd never mistaken somebody else's kids for my kids. Um, and there was a little boy who was two. That's how old my son was. His name was Thomas, I still remember. Um, and he came every day by himself. He walked across the street, neighborhood, whatever, all by himself. All he ever had on was a dirty diaper that needed to be changed. No shoes. No, and he had, he needed a bath. He needed, you know, he had lice and, and he was sick. He had a green runny nose and, and was in bad shape. And uh, nobody was taking care of him. And he looked like my son. <sighs> so... I'd see him out of the corner of my eye, and I would spin toward him, wanted to scoop him up, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't David, it was it was my son, and that happened more than once that week, and it broke it just it broke my heart, <laughs> and I was supposed to be the team leader. I was supposed to <laughs> we were supposed to be running stations and doing all this stuff, and I could I mean I could hardly I mean even now this what was that 23 years ago, and it, I had I just could. I don't know. So I couldn't stop thinking about those kids when I got back to Alabama. Um, another crazy thing happened. Uh, we were working on a lady's home, roofing and painting, <clears throat> and uh, it was hot. It was a, we were on that roof. It was 107 degrees, <laughs> and we were popping up shingles. There were cedar shake shingles, and they were full of soot from Mount Adam, Mount St. Helens when it erupted. <laughs> And so we had black soot all over our faces and our teeth were black and everything. <clears throat> and, uh, but the lady was real nervous and she didn't want to come out and talk to anybody. And I didn't blame her. I mean, you know, a bunch of random white folks from Alabama all over her house painting and roofing and knocking down weeds in the yard and everything else. And she was just felt overwhelmed, I think. She's a little bit of a hermit, maybe. <clears throat> a lot of folks are in White Swan. And didn't get a chance to talk to her all week. And that was killing me. Because I'm like, why are we, you know, if we're not able to even pray with her and there's no church in town that will follow up with her, what are we doing? You know, and a lot of y'all are familiar with the book When Helping Hurts and that this was long before that was written, but I was having those same thoughts. I'm like, I, I think we're just rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking ship here. I think we gotta, somebody needs to reach out to this lady with the truth of the gospel or else are we just making her comfortable on her way to hell? I don't know. And it was, it was, so it was really, maybe it was so hot on the roof, it had me thinking a lot about that. But um, on the very last day, we were loading up, all my students were loaded up in vans, we were about to drive, fly back to Alabama. And we had had no contact with this lady, and there was nobody going to follow up with her. And I was, I was devastated by that. I was devastated by the kids' situation. <clears throat> and I walked around the house one more time to make sure we were, weren't leaving anything behind. And uh, I was halfway across the front yard about to get in a van and drive away. And as far as I knew, never go to White Swan again, never see this lady again. Um, and I heard a noise behind me, and it was the lady, and she was running to catch me. And what I always tell folks, I didn't know, if you know anything about White Swan, I didn't know back then. But <clears throat> back then especially, people didn't run to catch folk, to catch uh, strangers <laughs> or outsiders in White Swan. They might run to chase you off, but they weren't going to run to catch you. But here she was running to catch me. And when I turned around, she had tears streaming down her face. And again, that's something else that just didn't happen back then. <clears throat> you wouldn't show weakness in front of an outsider in White Swan, uh, a native lady in front of a white guy. Um, 
And I'll never forget what she said. She, um, she said, why would you guys do this for me? She said, you came all the way from Alabama. <clears throat> and, and she said, you paid for those plane tickets. You paid for the shingles. You paid for the paint. And you, you did all this work on my house for free. Why would you even do that? She said, she said my own family wouldn't do this for me. And if you remember that verse that we just heard, that passage in Isaiah 58, there is a, there's a phrase in there that says, don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. And uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But that idea of family was hitting me hard because I had just been looking at those kids and thinking they were my kids, even though technically they weren't. Uh, and here she is saying, you guys have come in here and made significant sacrifices to treat me like family. And I want to know the rest of the story. Why would you do that? <clears throat> and, I, and I told her, um, that's a, I said, that's a great story that a bunch of folks from Alabama would come do this for you. The truth is there's millions of people around this country that would love to come and do this very thing if they had the chance to do it. There's a lot of people out there that would care about you just like we do <clears throat> and do this. And it's good for you to know that. But there's an even better story that we want you to know and remember after we're gone. And that's that Jesus picked your house. And he picked everybody on this team. Uh, he gave us the motivation and the opportunity to come here. He provided every single dollar that we needed to buy the paint and the plane tickets and everything else. And that's what you need to know is that Jesus cares about you. And he chose your house this week. And that's why we're here is to share the love of Jesus with you and to share the rest of the story with you. And I was able to share the gospel in the context. She had experienced the love of God that week in a very practical ways. And then I was able to tell her the rest of the story and, and share the gospel with her in a way that made sense to her, I think. Maybe it's the first time it ever did make sense. I wish I could tell you she fell on her knees and prayed to receive Christ that day. She didn't. But a native lady did stand in the hot sun and listen to a random white guy from Alabama talk about Jesus. <laughs> and she started that conversation. She had the agency to start the conversation. I wasn't cramming it down her throat. She was asking me about it. And it was actually her grandson that ran and jumped on the bus with no clothes on years later. <clears throat> um, so those two, those two things, the impact of the kids at Kids Club that had on me, the impact of this lady saying to me, you guys have treated me like family, and now I want to I know what it is that motivates you. I want to know more of the story. Um, and then Isaiah 58. I was already familiar with that passage, uh, but it really <laughs> uh, started hitting me hard after I got back to Alabama. And I remember looking around and just thinking, you know, there's, there's a town with no healthy, healthy churches in it. And down in Alabama, you've got a church on every corner. I mean... I started counting the churches I drove past every day to get to my church. It was 22 that I drove by. I don't know how many were good ones, but there were 20. I was thinking, we got to spread out. You know, like if there's towns out there, the kids at Kids Club, they didn't know anything about Jesus. They didn't know any of the basic stories like Jonah and the whale or anything. It was all brand new. And they would come up to us after story time and say, did that really happen? Is that a true? And who's Jesus? Who, who you keep talking about Jesus? Is he like a movie star or something? Who's this? Who are you talking about? And so got to be the first people to tell kids about Jesus. Um, well, the heart of what we're doing, the cornerstone passage really is Isaiah 58. Um, and let me share that with you and, uh, 
and we'll, we'll look at it together. Uh, we're just going to look at six, verses 6 through 12. So God says to his people, uh, to the Israelites then and to us today, he says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Well, the first time I came across that verse, I was, I was confused. I was like, I don't know about breaking yokes, and I don't know much about oppression and how to, I mean, this sounds like a job for Superman or something, I, I don't know. Or at least for like lawyers and, and judges and police officers and politicians. No, probably not. But anyway, so I, just, I don't think, I, I'm just a regular guy. I don't think this verse is for regular people, maybe. Well, I think the Lord knew there was going to be knuckleheads like me out there. So he gave us verse 7 where he breaks it down and makes it a little more straightforward. He said, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? So he says, is not this the fast? Isn't this the fast that I want? Share your bread with the hungry. Well, that makes sense. I'm not eating it anyway because I'm fasting, right? I might as well give it to somebody else. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Well, I, he's kind of expanding our idea of fasting, right? But it, may, it still makes sense. He's saying, if you're not going to eat the bread, share it with somebody who needs it. But how about this? If you're, if you're already making some sacrifices, how about just keep on going with it and clothe the naked and take the homeless poor into your home and shelter people that don't have shelter? <clears throat> and uh, he said, you're already making some sacrifices. Let's just keep on. Let's keep moving in that direction. And he says, when you do that, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. So think about that. Those are six promises there. Six blessings. But they're interesting sorts of, they're not really the blessings we normally ask for, right? Uh, you know, we're not, we're not getting a better car or, <laughs> or something. We're not getting a pay raise. <clears throat> All these blessings in, uh, imply need. Like if your light is going to break forth like the dawn, that means you're in the dark. If your healing is going to spring forth speedily, that means you're either sick or hurt, Right? You need to be healed. If your righteousness is going to go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard, that means you need guidance in front of you and you need the Lord to watch your back. That means somebody's after you, right? Uh, if you call and the Lord answers, that means you need him. Uh, if you cry and he says, here I am, that, that means you're hurting. You need help. You need something. You need God and, and no, nobody else is going to be able to do whatever it is you need, right? So what he's saying is, if you venture out into this, if you begin to fast in the way that I want you to fast, if you share your bread with the hungry, if you, if you get involved with the homeless, you get involved with the poor, you're, gonna, you're kind of creeping out on a limb. And at some point, that limb's going to break. You're going to be out there in the dark. You're going to be hurting. You're going to need me, but I'm going to be right there. He keeps going. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. 
Let's, let's st- stop there for a minute. <clears throat> think about the yoke. If you take away the yoke from your midst and think about what Jesus did. Why did he get so angry at the Pharisees? Because they were putting heavier and heavier rules and laws, man-made rules and laws and restrictions, and they were giving people idea that they could make God happy by being good enough somehow, right? Which is an anti-gospel. That's the opposite of what the gospel teaches us. They were putting a heavier and heavier burden and yoke on people, right? And that's why Jesus got so angry at him, at them. And he says that let's, we don't need to be doing that. We don't need to put a heavier burden on people that are already burdened down. We need to figure out how to lift some burdens off of folks, right? And he says, if you do away with the pointing finger and the malicious talk. And think for a minute uh, about how often you hear, if you hear anybody talking about native people, how often does the conversation turn malicious? You know, Um, some versions say the speaking of wickedness. Don't, he's saying, don't speak wickedly. (laughs) Don't, Don't talk maliciously about your neighbor's who are suffering, you know, and we do sometimes, you know, it's not just native folks, of course, we get carried away and we, we say things, we just have no, the only person that ever would have been justified in pointing fingers and speaking maliciously was Jesus and pointing at you and me. And if he wasn't going to do that, then what business do we have pointing at anybody else and speaking Talking ugly, like we say in Alabama, right? There's just no place for it among God's people. Um, no, no excuse for it. If, if Jesus wasn't going to treat us that way, there's no, no reason for us to treat somebody else that way. Um, and then this phrase. This is kind of the, the little phrase that we hang on to where we're in the middle of chaos. It says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry... Pour yourself out. <clears throat> some verses or some versions say if you spend yourself. So um, Dennis was talking about all of the gifts that God's given us, all uh, amazing resources and all the things we've been given. And a lot of things we've been given we don't think about as resources that we could use to bless somebody else necessarily, right? Uh, but everything from time and energy, whatever knowledge we have, wisdom we've been given, um, healthy bodies, uh, vehicles, I mean, whatever, we, all these things. And sometimes we forget that we've been given those things too. Sometimes we walk around thinking, I went out there and earned those things myself, right? And a lot of times we think, and a lot of us were raised, I was raised this way, I don't know if you were. Uh, if you grew up in middle class, most folks are raised to think the way, the way that you live your life, you gotta make smart decisions, make wise decisions, get good grades, work your way through, you know, and, and then down the road, you're going to get what you want if you, you know, keep your nose clean and do the right thing and make smart decisions, right? That's, that's the way I was raised. That's what I was taught. And a lot of times that's true. But the ability to even do that is a gift from God, right? I mean, we don't want to take credit for what God has given us as if he wasn't involved. <laughs> um, the other thing is that's not always true. Sometimes you're doing everything you ought to do and you still get sideswiped by life somehow I mean it could literally be a car wreck (laughs) and you wind up paralyzed from the neck down in a wheel you know whatever it is I mean there's all sorts of things that can happen to us 
that we didn't that we didn't do to ourselves that throw us completely off the original plan, right? Sometimes, like kids in White Swan, they never they never even get started. I mean, they never have a chance to even begin to move in the right direction from the time they're little bitty, right? Um, but he says, if you take everything you've been given, everything, just think about everything you are, everything you have. Imagine that it's a bank account. Everything's in the bank. And basically he's saying, go bankrupt. Take everything you got and pour it out for your neighbors who are suffering, your neighbors in need. And what, you know, if you're like me, <clears throat> immediately you start thinking, well, in all honesty, what would motivate me to do that? Like, I remember one of my earliest memories is my mom trying to explain to me about sharing. Like it says, share your bread with the hungry. I think it was probably the first time I ever had a friend come over to play. I might have been three. And <clears throat> she said, you know, when, you're, when your friend comes over, you're going to share your toys. He's going to play with your toys, too. You're going to share. And I remember thinking, ah, can he just sit and watch me play with my toys? Like, I don't really want him touching my stuff. You know, I don't, he might break something. I don't, I don't like this idea. And then she said, also, I'm going to make cookies. And you're going to share cookies with I mean I kind of want all the cookies you know and in all honesty I've gotten a lot more sophisticated in the way I don't share with folks and I know not to say things out loud that I didn't know when I was three but deep down I still kind of like having my stuff there was a lady in white swan I'm not even sure she was a Christian she she says she is and thinks she is I hope she is uh, she's definitely not reformed in her theology I'll tell you that but uh, some neighbors moved in next door to her, and they were, she's native, they were Mexican, they didn't speak any English, so she couldn't communicate with them, <clears throat> and uh, not too long after they moved in, their trailer, it was a single-wide trailer next to her single-wide, and it caught on fire and burned up, and they lost everything. This family lost everything. They had no homeowner's insurance, no nothing. Everything they had in that trailer burned up, and it was gone. And she's telling me this story. She said, so I took everything I have, all, all my stuff, my dishes, my silverware, my pots and pans, my bedding, my towels, my clothes, everything. She said, I took everything I had and I put, I made two piles. This is my favorite stuff in this pile, my favorite half of everything, and my least favorite half of everything. And I, I was thinking, okay, I think I know where you're going. I didn't. She said, I took my favorite half and gave it to my neighbor's. Now that's generosity, that's, share, that's sharing. And she couldn't even talk to them, they didn't speak English. And honestly, Mexican folks and native folks don't always get along. <laughs> they don't really like each other that much and they're not too shy about telling you they don't like each other. But she took half, her favorite half of everything and gave it to her neighbors who had just lost everything. Now, just think about this for a minute. Don't think about everything you got. Don't even think about your vehicles, okay? You're, don't, we're not giving away your favorite car yet. But just think about your shoes. I don't know, but I like shoes. And I'm picky about the shoe, my shoes. But that hurts to think about if I'm going to get all my shoes out of the closet, divide it, these are my favorite shoes and my least favorite shoes, and I'm going to give away all my favorite shoes. Does that hurt a little bit? <laughs> Does that sound like, I mean... But she gave away her favorite half of everything to this family that she couldn't even communicate. She didn't know them. 
But that's a good example of sharing, you know, making sacrifices. Here's the thing. Pour yourself out. Where's that motivation come from? Jesus on the cross. If we remember, if we stop and remember where we were before Jesus came to get us, if we stop and think about where we would be today if Jesus had not come to get us, and if we think about what it cost him to come and get us, he poured himself out, literally on the cross. His blood, his body was broken open, and his blood was poured out so that we could have a home in heaven that would never need a new roof, never need a new paint job. <laughs> we can have a home in him. I love the Psalms. Time and time again, it says, I run into you. You are my refuge. I run into you and I'm safe. Well, Jesus' body was broken open <laughs> so that we can run in, right? He says, share your bread with the hungry. Jesus is not asking us to do anything remotely like what he's done for us, for our neighbors. It's just little glimmers. He's saying, will you just, just share little glimmers of the greatest story in the universe with your neighbors? Share your bread with the hungry. And then we look at Jesus. He says, I am your bread. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, <laughs> he said, I'm the bread of life, right? Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. We run into him and we're safe. Clothe the naked. I love this. I didn't grow up knowing this. Uh, do you know the Bible talks about the robe of righteousness? Have you all ever looked at that? I've tried to imagine what, is that, what does that look like? And here's my best guess. This is not, you know, this is just me. But I think every good thing Jesus ever did was like a golden thread. Like if you could make a thread out of sunshine, that's what it is. Every good and perfect thing he ever did, everything he ever said, every healing, every time he obeyed God and, and did what God was telling him to do, every time he didn't do the wrong thing, every, every, you know, every, every moment was a golden thread of sunshine that he wove together into a robe of righteousness and now he, wrapped, he has wrapped us in it. So that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he treats us like we are righteous, even though we're still sinners right now. That's justification, right? Jesus has done the work that he, only he could do to make us justified. We're just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd done everything right. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not a sinner. I am a sinner. But God has declared you and me righteous and holy and he treats us that way. And then the Holy Spirit is behind the scenes. I heard E.V. Hill, pastor from Compton, heard him speak in, in person. I didn't know how special that was. I was only a teenager, but I still remember what he said. He said, the Holy Spirit is bringing our condition as sinners in line. As we're sanctified, he's lining everything up so that our condition as sinners is lined up with our position in Christ, which is righteous. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing now. So God the Father looks at us and we're covered in Christ. He treats us as holy and righteous and the Holy Spirit is doing the work behind the scenes to line us up. Our condition is going to line up with our position. I think right when we step into heaven is <laughs> when that finally happens and we're sanctified completely. But that's what Jesus has done for us. And if we believe that, if we remember that, 
And then he says, now, look, I want you to love your neighbors in just everyday simple ways. Feed them, clothe them, take them home. <laughs> I've done all this for you. I've done all the same things. For, I poured myself out for you on the cross. And now I'm asking you to take the things I've, I've given you and pour that out. But then look what happens. <clears throat> he says, if you pour yourself out, if you empty yourself. Oh, the next phrase, look at that. Satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Whew, think about that for a bit. <laughs> Have you ever hung out with somebody that was afflicted with anything? Could be physical, could be mental, it could be addiction, it could be emotional affliction, that's fun. Uh, it could be social <laughs> affliction. I discipled some guys back in Alabama who were socially afflicted. <laughs> And I, I took them into my group because I figured I'm getting paid for this and the, the volunteer guys aren't. So, whew, it was rough, <clears throat> those two. But you know what? The Lord has healed a lot of that in them now, and they're doing great. Uh, one of them is a major in the Army, and one of them is a police officer. And you, they're just normal guys now. But, man, when they were in high school, they were afflicted. <clears throat> and it wasn't always fun hanging out with them. But he doesn't say hang out with the afflicted. He, doesn't, he says satisfy the desire of the afflicted. That's a whole other ballgame. Just figuring out what is their desire anyway. A lot of times they don't even know what their desire is. They don't know what they need. But moving close enough to somebody that's afflicted to actually figure out what is it they really need. We know it's Jesus, but what does that look? How do we help them understand that? You know, that's a tall order. But that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. We were afflicted in every way, shape, and form. And he has satisfied our, satisfied our desires at great cost to himself. He paid the ultimate price to do that. But look what he says is going to happen <clears throat> if you pour yourself out. Uh, he says, I got lost. Here it is. Verse 11. Oh, no, halfway through verse 10. He says, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your gloom will be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Again, really great promises. And let me tell you this too. In the early days of doing what we're doing, I had to say, we believe God is going to do this with me and my family and now our church. But after 20 years of being out there, he does do this. We've experienced it time and time again. He has guided us. He satisfied our needs. He's made us strong. Um, he's done it time and time again. And not just for me, but for everybody in our church. And then look at this. If you pour yourself out, he'll make you like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Um, so what he's saying is if you empty yourself, uh, I'm going to fill you up all over again. And instead of being like a stagnant pond with scum on top, whatever else. If we try to hold on to all of our stuff and we say, this is mine and I'm not sharing, we become stagnant, you know, people. But if we're willing to share with others in a variety of ways, all of a sudden there, everything starts to flow. This river of life that we've always heard about, right? The, the love, the goodness, all these promises that he has here, that starts to flow through us. And essentially, it flushes us out in a way, right? And there's a lot more life and, and hope and joy. Think about, it's, it describes a well-watered garden in a sun-scorched land. 
if you think about a desert and there's a, a well-watered garden, we call that an oasis, right? And an oasis can be the difference between life and death. And that's what the Lord is saying here. I can make you like an oasis in a sun-scorched land where people come and find life flowing through you. There's nothing better we could do with our lives. That is the ultimate thing that we can do with our, with our lives and everything that God's given us. It goes on and says, your ancient ruins will be rebuilt and you'll raise up the foundations of many generations. You'll be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. And I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, okay, now I'm back at verse six. I'm all confused again. <laughs> what are we talking about? What is it? What does this even mean? But what it basically means is God can use us to redeem and restore and rebuild and renew broken people, broken families, broken communities. Entire towns can be transformed by the power of the gospel flowing through God's people. Um, and that's our prayer for White Swan. I really hope that one day down the road, people will come to White Swan after being gone a long time and say, man, what happened around here? This is not the same town it used to be when I was here last, you know, and everybody would point to Jesus and say, he's the one that has transformed us and our town, our community. So we talk about community development. <laughs> uh, this is kind of the ultimate example of community development. Redeeming, restoring, renewing. One thing I'm, I tend to be shy about, um, I'm not very shy in general, and I don't get embarrassed too easy, uh, but one thing I'm, I'm shy about is that I've been given an Indian name uh, by an elder in the tribe. Wendell Hannigan is, has been a political leader and religious leader in the community, <clears throat> and he and I met early on. We've known each other right at 20 years. Um, and there's no reason in the world he should have ever liked me. <laughs> in fact, there's every reason in the world he should have hated my guts. Um, and maybe some days he did. But for the most part, he has basically taken me under his wing and, and adopted me uh, as a son and gave me an Indian name. Um, and the Indian name is, is Mool Mool, so M-O-O-L-M-O-O-L. And I'm telling you this because y'all are part of it. Y'all have been with us from day one. Moomool um, was a place. Uh, now it's Fort Simcoe. Uh, but if you've ever been out there, there's an underground spring that bubbles up out of the ground. And it was called Moomool before Fort Simcoe was built. And it was a gathering place where people would come because there's clean water there in a sun-scorched valley. And there was wild animals, so there's food, there's wild roots and berries that you could gather. There was shade because there's big cottonwood trees that grow up around the spring. But also you would meet friends and family there and get organized to go down to the Columbia River to fish or to go up in the mountains to hunt or to gather traditional foods. And so Moomool was a meeting place where everything you needed was there. Um, and when Wendell heard this passage, um, he, that's what he wanted to name me. Um, and again, the, I'm telling you that because you guys have been part of our support structure from the very beginning. 
And also I'm telling you that because I hope that if you'll pray, if you pray for me and my family and our church, just pray that. <laughs> pray that we'll be an oasis in the desert where people come and find life. Not just physical food and physical clothes and shelter, but Jesus himself uh, is what people will find. That's our, that's our desire. Um, a lot of exciting things are happening. We, are, we just sent a full-time team down to Warm Springs, Oregon. Uh, so eventually we hope to have a church down there. Uh, one of the folks on the team is or, just recently got ordained. Uh, and so we're excited about that. We're reaching out to Lapway, Idaho, and uh, have an open invitation with their Boys and Girls Club to come in and do kids clubs over there. We were there last Wednesday, uh, and uh, kids heard about Jonah and the whale for the first time uh, over there in Lapway. We had about 70 kids, I think, at the kids club. Uh, <clears throat> and we're reaching out to other native communities like Georgeville and Celilo uh, down on the river. Um, there's 60 reservations in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho about 120 communities like White Swan and not many healthy churches out there. I'm probably 10 or 20. Uh, and so there's a lot. It's almost like an unreached people group right here uh, in the Northwest. And then a couple of months ago, we got a, a major invitation from a church in Anchorage uh, to come and help them start reaching out to Native people in the city and in the villages. Uh, and multiple people offered to fly me out to the villages where they don't have churches, things like that. And the pastor at the church in Anchorage said, we want you to come help us do this. And we have a lot of money. <laughs> we have a big budget. You never hear that part, right? We have, a, we have a big budget and we're serious about this. We want to learn how to reach out to Native people effectively. And so we started brainstorming and, and I'm, I get chills thinking about it. I can't wait to get back up there and see what we can figure out. But the Lord's on the move. He's drawing people to himself. Uh, and we're grateful to you guys for all the ways you've helped us. And uh, we look forward to, if God's done what he's done so far in 20 years, what's he going to do in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Uh, so we're really grateful. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we stop and really think, sometimes we don't. We just rush through life. We go from one thing to another, uh, urgent stuff. Sometimes it, uh, the urgent stuff is not the most important stuff, but we, we're just flying around busy. And we forget. We forget what you've done for us, Lord. We forget. We forget where we were. We forget where we would be if you had left us alone, if you had not poured yourself out for us. It's, it's horrible to consider what our situation would be. And Lord, because we forget our gratitude slips away. And our love for you and our love for others uh, slips away. So Lord, we pray that you would reinvigorate uh, our gratitude, our love for you, our love for our neighbors who are hurting. Lord, that you would give us everything we need, the courage, the, the love, the faith, everything that we need to... Uh, to glorify you in that way, to glorify you by reaching out to the afflicted, uh, to the homeless, to the poor, to the suffering. Lord, in, in the same sorts of ways that you reached out to people and to us uh, time and time again. Lord, give us the courage, fill us with your spirit, and let your will be done. Let your kingdom come in us and through us and all around us. 
We pray these things in your name. Amen.